I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters. In part one of this special two-parter, The Story of Us, we spoke to Brian Stevenson, David Blight, Viet Thanh Nguyen, and Ruha Benjamin about some of the stories that shape our understanding of America. Today on part two, we'll explore the ways that these dominant stories are then reproduced and popularized through film and through other technologies. To hear more about the origins of this conversation, check out part one. In the 1993 documentary, D.W. Griffith, The Father of Film, William Walker, an African-American man, shares the harrowing experience of watching Birth of a Nation in 1916 in a Black-only theater. Some people were crying. You could hear people saying, oh God, you had the worst feeling in the world. It just felt like you were, you were not counted. You were just out of existence. Black people knew what this film was doing and would do to our well-being in this country. With its framing of African-Americans in the worst negative light possible, they were clear that this film would reinforce the death grasp of white supremacy, and they were right. President Wilson, the Supreme Court, and white people across the country saw history in the film, not defamation of Black people. And this would shape the material realities of Black people for generations. What does it mean that one of the founding documents for American cinema is essentially a love letter to white supremacy? A movie that portrays the Ku Klux Klan as heroes and glorifies the killing of Black people. That in spite of everything, it is still widely considered in Hollywood to be one of the greatest films ever made. Those who would argue that, well, it's just a movie, Forget that the way we are taught to receive and experience stories doesn't end when we turn off the TV or walk out of the movie theater. The entire world that we live in is a series of stories. And as we've seen recently, these stories, however false they are, can become activated for political purposes. The little sister is pursued by a renegade black soldier. The clan seeks vengeance for her death dipping flag and flaming cross into her blood. Silas Lynch, the leading black figure, has abducted Senator Stoneman's daughter. Klansmen are summoned from every corner of the state for a great ride to the rescue. You weren't watching people ride, you were riding with them. And you weren't riding with them to rescue somebody, but you were riding on a stern determination of vengeance, vengeance for the death of that beautiful little sister that you'd learned to love so well. And that ride continues a century later. On June 17, 2015, exactly 100 years after Birth of a Nation was released, Dylan Roof stormed into Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Right before opening fire, he reportedly said, you rape our women and you're taking over our country and you have to go. 
The fact that Dylan Roof was able to rehearse this fundamental storyline, you rape our women, despite the fact that six of the nine people he killed were women, shows just how devastating the power of narrative can be, of propaganda being made real over a century later by the ability to stage it. Who knows if Dylan Roof ever saw Birth of a Nation? He didn't have to. Its imprint on our national consciousness is indelible. The idea of America as precious, as in need of protection, as being subject to plunder and rape that requires male heroism to ride to the rescue, so powerful this story has become that not even an 87-year-old great-grandmother could be exempt from it. Stories are not simply fantasies or ideas that dwell only in the imagination. Stories can be made real. The story of the birth of a nation was made real in Charleston, South Carolina in 2015. And it was made real a hundred years earlier when its release prompted KKK recruitment to reach an all-time high. It's impossible to know how many homicides and atrocities the story of Birth of a Nation is ultimately responsible for. What we do know, though, is that how one is imagined in the minds of those in power is an entrapment that can lead to a multitude of violent outcomes, including the loss of life. So if you're imagined as a community that only produces rapists, that lie can lead to death. Deadly violence can also be justified by one's racialized sexuality, as we saw play out in the Atlanta spa shootings a few weeks ago. If you're projected in someone else's imagination as a temptress, a seductress, that can render you subject to their pathologies and even subject to their violence. As Ruha Benjamin says later in this conversation, imagination is a battlefield. There's a sensibility that technology is inherently a force for good, but we know that it's not always the case. Take, for instance, the book that inspired Birth of a Nation. The Klansman, a historical romance of the Ku Klux Klan, was written in 1905 by Thomas Dixon, a white supremacist Baptist minister from the South. Prior to Birth of a Nation, The Klansman was a regional book, primarily read by other white folks in the South who wanted to read about the Civil War from the perspective of the Confederacy. It wasn't until D.W. Griffith turned it into a movie that people all over the country became exposed to the ideas in Dixon's book. Harnessing this new technology, Dixon was able to spread white supremacist ideology to millions of people across the country. And he was able to make it feel personal and immediate to them in a way that words on a page never could have. It's a prime example of how technology paired with a racist white supremacist storyline can effectively rewrite history. It can overcome the outcome of the Civil War, overcome truth, the truth of Reconstruction, the truth of what the Civil War was fought over, the truth of a multiracial democracy. Those histories are virtually unknown, but the myth of the Black rapists, the myth of a civil war fought over honor rather than over the desire to hold on to slaves, this is the power that technology has given, the power to turn fiction into reality. 
If technology could do that then, primitive by today's standards, how can we begin to fathom the scope of what technology is doing today? To answer that question, we turn to Ruha Benjamin, a sociologist at Princeton University, whose work focuses on the relationship between technological innovation and racial equity. My mantra is that racism is productive and racism gets hidden in these technological uh, systems, right? And so before there was the coup on January 6th, there was already a digital coup. <laughs> there was already plenty of evidence suggesting that there was, you know, masses of people who were ready to revolt. Now we know they were just posting freely, like they had t-shirts made, they were not hiding the fact. And so just thinking about the role of platforms in enabling the lies, the disinformation, they were profiting off of the proliferation of all of this only after the fact they decided to deplatform Trump. Too late, too little, too late. Um, but essentially, they were making money off of the proliferation of all of these ideas and these stories that then coalesced on, on January 6th. So for me, there's a lot to say about all of the different ways that technology is complicit, that technology companies are complicit. Imagination is a battlefield. That's what, you know, and, and so thinking about storytelling and the idea that we're living inside someone else's imagination when it comes to these technologies, what they enable, what they, what kinds of connections they allow or don't allow. And so I think we have to, again, think about not just the literal stories that come to us in movies and films, but the stories that are embedded in these technologies as a straightforward good and understand that too often we're conflating social progress with technological innovation. Racism is innovative, it's productive, and we see so much evidence of that, whether we're talking about, you know, the kind of filter bubbles that allow these lies to proliferate or the many other manifestations of it. That's so, that's so brilliant. You know, it, it, uh, when you say racism is innovative, it reminds me of Malcolm X who says, you know, racism is like, what, a, a, a Cadillac or something? They, they have a new model every year. You know, this, this is the problem with thinking that racism is basically just, uh, you know, pathology of the past. Backwards, ignorance. No, racism is a distorted form of knowledge. It's not simply that it's a lack of something. And so that's, again, when we look at the demographics of who was showing up and they started doing these profiles of these CEOs and these people who, this is not the economically disenfranchised story that we've been fed. But you get to see, actually, that people are mad that their paychecks are being harmed. You know, I, I love I love that it's not a lack of something because this, again, goes back to when the story of racism does, you know, reach the outskirts of Hollywood, it still comes in as it is the product of ignorance or it is the product of, you know, class politics. The classic one, you know, is uh, To Kill a Mockingbird and people really feel like I understand racism now, but there are, there are conservative, moderate visions of what racism is that limits it, contains it, locates it, you know, as the last dying breath of an old order rather than the continuing foundations of ever new orders. So the ground that we stand on is racially coded. Um, so the industry either avoids it or soft pedals it, they're still participating in it. 
Later in the conversation, we hear from Viet Tan Nguyen, author of the Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Sympathizer, about how diversity alone is not enough to change Hollywood's trajectory, particularly when we know that a minority of people of color are also seduced by Trumpism and its signature narratives. And so, Viet, I, w- I want to come to you. You write about, you know, a character who tries to interrupt the conventional stories, the conventional ways in which America maintains its innocence. So, first of all, I'm really curious about what the lessons are from looking at the American gaze, not just inside but outside, what you're trying to do there, but also the way in which the implication here is more than a diversity line. It's not like just recast or put, put more you know, non-white characters at the center, because sometimes putting non-white characters in the center of a frame that's still you know, deeply uh, infused with these storylines uh, just builds into the problem, not interrupts it. I think we have to be aware of storytelling in two dimensions. One is the story that we see on the screen or on the page. And the other is, again, the industry that makes stories possible. So on the screen or on the page, I mean, one of the most important things we have to, to confront is that people aren't simple and countries aren't simple. Now, the other problem is that the industries of storytelling are, are a little bit different. So it's very difficult to do something like change the direction of Hollywood or change the direction of a blockbuster when a blockbuster costs 100 or $200 million to produce. And that's, that's part of the tragedy or the comedy that I outlined in, in my novel. But we can see that when people who are outsiders try to operate within Hollywood, even with the best of intentions, sometimes they get either blocked by this kind of industrial power, this inequality, or they also get seduced by the power of basic American narratives. Apocalypse Now, for example, great anti-war movie, but it's a movie that returns Americans to the center of the story so that they would rather occupy the center of the story as the anti-heroes and as the villains if that's what it takes. And then Spike Lee makes The Five Bloods. I'm a huge admirer of Spike Lee, but what basically what that film basically does is to insert black men into that very same story to take up the position of the anti-hero at the expense of the Vietnamese and at the expense of a certain kind of complexity of history. And so the power of that narrative of the Vietnam War of putting Americans at the center at the expense of everybody else is a, is a narrative that's seductive, not just for white people and white men, but also for other peoples of color in the United States as well. So so I want to build off of that, the, the what gets centered and what gets marginalized and come back to you, Brian. Um, so the rallying cry of make America great again, we can't quite call that a dog whistle because um, a lot of people can hear what that is. We've talked about the silences that facilitate this, but building on Viet, how has Hollywood contributed to this notion that our greatness is behind us? I think this industry has retreated from the responsibility it has to engage in honest discourse. When they make these movies, just as you said, they're apologetic. They look for ways to kind of put so much sugar on it that you miss that ugly, raw, rotten thing in the center of it. And as a result of that, we don't make the progress we're supposed to make. You don't make progress. After Mississippi burning, the only thing that happened after that is that there was a consciousness in the American South that there were a few bad Klan members. And now it's safe to go prosecute them 
which they did in the 90s and felt like after they prosecuted these 90 some year old white dudes for violence they did in the 50s and 60s, that somehow Alabama and Mississippi had been redeemed by their willingness to prosecute the people who were really culpable for that violence. It was the governors and lieutenant governors and prosecutors and judges, all of whom now get to go watch this movie and feel good about themselves. But the instinct in American storytelling is so fearful. And, and you know, so then they, they ghettoize you so that truth tellers have to make the $20,000 budget movie produced by somebody who's put out one movie before. Mm-hmm. That's why I think mainstream studios and all of these institutions have a role to play. And I just contrast it again with the effort around the Holocaust. I mean, I, I think that Hollywood broadly and, and filmmakers around the world have done a really tremendous service, positive service, by exploring the Holocaust. There are hundreds of films about the Holocaust and each of them bring to light aspects of that horrific period that continue to deepen our appreciation of all about that era that was tragic. And it makes all of us commit to say, never again. And you don't have to be Jewish, you don't have to been alive. You have a consciousness about what happened during that horrific era that if you understand it, you're motivated to say never again. We have not done that same kind of storytelling about the plight of indigenous people in this country. We have not done that same kind of storytelling about the horrors of slavery. Most people don't know anything about the domestic slave trade and about how half of all black people were separated from their children and their families. The drama in separation, and the tr- it's all there. But no one has been willing to tell that story. You and I were high school kids when Roots came out I think we both participated in high school essay contests. What does roots mean to me? Because it was so revelatory. And I think a lot of people thought this would be the beginning of a new era of storytelling when we understood the richness of all that had happened. And it wasn't the beginning of a new era. It was a single event. And we didn't have another 50 years of storytelling about that period. And I think it's just really an indictment of uh, the institutions that shape storytelling that we don't understand what happened in the first half of the 20th century. We don't have a lot and, of stories. And what's about what's it. the why of that? Because I, I, you know you are so right. Like, remember how Roots were everyone? It was the original water cooler moment. Like everybody watched Roots, um, and and one could tell the difference in the in the conversations about race and and about American society that were prompted by this. Uh, interrogation of the past that most people either didn't know about or black people in particular didn't want to talk about it. And you're right, 50 years late, nothing really grew out of that, maybe until 12 years of slave. So what is the why? You, you've talked a little bit about the, the fear, the caution. What is it that makes it so unlikely that American cinema engages these questions? I do think it's about power. That is, the people who do truth-telling in other societies have to have enough power to advance that. Denzel Washington made The Great Debaters, which was a movie about lynching, but it wasn't going to be something that a lot of other people were going to do. 12 Years a Slave is another good example. So I don't think the people who have power have been motivated to do this kind of courageous storytelling for three reasons. One, they don't think they're going to make money, and for a lot of people, money is the guiding principle. Two, they're not required to do it. American audiences in the mainstream haven't been pushed to confront it either. So they're, they're not demanding it. And three, I don't think they recognize how being silent can sometimes be just as dangerous, just as damaging and detrimental 
as being the kind of the birth of the nation storytellers. I mean, it was the silence mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. uh, cultural institutions in Germany in the 1930s that really led to the horrors of that era. It was the silence of story makers. And so what we have to do is we have to really push story makers. You know, things like law and order. I mean, you know, we had a whole generation grow up with these stories. All police officers are beautiful, they're kind, they're smart, they have a few issues, but those are the people you trust. Well, for black folks who are menaced and targeted and often uh, pursued wrongly, it's a false narrative. You, you could not create that series with uh, input from a substantial part of the black community. And what we've learned is that you can't even educate yourself away from the menace of blackness. I graduated from Harvard Law School at the same time you did, went to Atlanta, got pulled out of my car by the police where they threatened to blow my brains out. And it took all of my skill just to survive. And that story has to be told if we're going to understand what we're dealing with. So I think this is where new voices is going to be critical. It's going to be important. But I think we have to see that we have an obligation to repair. I mean, if a company violates, does some damage, they get sued, they can't just say, oh, I'm not going to do that anymore. They have to repair mm -hmm. the damage. We have a framework for damages. Most of the law school curriculum that you and I went through was about damages, was about remedy. Yeah. And so I don't think it's enough for storytellers to say, OK, we'll have to do better. No, you are obligated now to repair the damage you did with a half century of stories about Native people that perpetuated these ideas that they were not fully human. You have an obligation to repair the damage you did by making hundreds of films about the mid-19th century that contributed to this idea that Black people are not as good as white people. In the same ways that we have to repair the damage we've done around domestic violence and a whole host of issues connected to a lot of things uh, in our society. And I just think when you understand that you are obligated as an institution to repair, first to tell the truth, and then repair, that's when you begin to find your, your energy. I think truth and justice can liberate you, can empower you. And that's the thing I believe. I just believe there's something better waiting for us. There's a whole catalog of films and stories waiting to be told that will not only enrich and entertain, but will move this nation to something that feels more like freedom, feels more like justice, feels more like equality. But we have to be bold if we're going to achieve that. What doesn't get repaired isn't seen as broken, and what's not seen as broken doesn't get repaired. So if we think about our republic, if we think about racism and white supremacy as something that has broken the promise of America, then we're committed to repairing it. But when we don't have a discourse of repair about racial inequality, when we don't think the ways that police interact with Black bodies or the ways in which Indigenous communities are disproportionately dying from COVID, or the ways that Asian Americans are being attacked in the wake of COVID. If we don't think those things require repair, then we basically said that these things that happen are normal, perfectly defensible within a system that's functioning the way it's supposed to function. The law is largely focused on remedy and repair, but that sensibility has never been applied to racial domination. In fact, even the demand for racial repair is often framed as un-American, itself racist. So clearly, we need to elevate the stories that demand a remedy, the stories about how we became the racialized and inequitable society that we are, if we ever want to become the society we strive to be.
maybe this is a moment where we could build in just a, a little bit uh, of levity with respect to, so what would it mean? Um, what, what are the cautionary tales that we want to be able to just hint at about how that responsibility can be taken up, uh, let's say better than it has in the, in the past? So I teach a course at UCLA called uh, Race, Representation, and the Law. Uh, the point of the departure of, of that is that storytelling about race in America is more impactful and more constitutive of what we sometimes call race relations and what actually happens in the legal and the political arenas. I mean, more Americans know what happened in the last episode of The Bachelor than they know about any Supreme Court case or executive order, even though the latter directly uh, impacts their lives like the next day. So learning language of film, learning about its history, its racial grammar, it gives us a deeper literacy about America. So one of the highlights of the course is we do our own Oscars um, at the end, and we give out awards for best performance as a predictable trope or character or storyline uh, in cinema's uh, ability to represent race in America. So I'll, I'll say Atticus Finch, he wins every year in the role of great white savior. But uh, Gene Hackman's character in Mississippi Burning, he gives, he gives Atticus Finch uh, a run for his money every time. So I, I'm curious about what it is about the ego of viewing audiences that necessitate stories about racial power when they are told to be told through a saving white figure. That's my constant question. But I'm curious about all of the favorite tropes, conventions, character storylines that you all see as part of Hollywood's rare forays into these uh, forbidden environs. So um, why don't I come back to you, Viet, uh, on that? What could be a category in our award ceremony? Well, I, reckon, I recommend that everybody read Charles Yu's novel, Interior Chinatown, which just won the National Book Award in Fiction, because it's written as a screenplay and it tackles exactly the issue you're talking about. It's a novel about a bunch of Asian American actors who cannot escape the roles that Hollywood has historically given to them as characters in a Chinatown kind of setting. You know, so you know that if you're an Asian American and there's a TV show like Law and Order, there's always going to be an episode where the cops go into Chinatown. So Interior Chinatown is about Asian Americans who only play extras with no names. The Asian guy, <laughs> the Asian girl. So that would be the, our Hollywood category. We would never get to be Atticus Finch. We just get to be the Asian waiter or the Oriental gangster or the Chinese prostitute and so on and so forth. And if you're a minority in American society, of whatever kind, racial, sexual, whatever, you live in a condition of narrative scarcity, which means that almost none of the stories are about you. And so when something comes along like crazy rich Asians, all the Asians freak out because they're like, oh my God, there's a story about us. And if you're a part of the majority, you live in narrative plenitude. Almost all the stories are about you. So if a bad movie comes along, you don't care because there's a thousand other movies all about people exactly like you. And so part of what it means to be equal in this country is for those of us who have lived in narrative scarcity to have the opportunities for narrative plenitude have, as Brian said, many, many stories about our experiences so that if one story fails, it doesn't matter. 
and that we have the opportunity to have the equal right to be mediocre, just like every other <laughs> American. So when we tell our stories, we don't feel the pressure that we have to represent the race, represent the community, and try to win this Oscar. We can just be average like everybody else. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, Ruha, what, what category would you propose? First of all, I love that idea of narrative plenitude. <laughs> I love that, Viet. Um, and so I think for me, the counterpart of the white savior um, would be the Uncle Tom. And so I would give the, the best depiction of an Uncle Tom to, let's say, Samuel L. Jackson in Django. And, uh, oh, yeah. and on a more serious note, movie. again, he, he saved that he movie. Did. He did. He did. <laughs> I, I'll just follow Viet's uh, example by just sharing, adding to the levity, but also kind of closing thought for me is really putting a finer point on this idea that imagination as this even even more broad than storytelling, imagination is a contested field of action. And it, it's not an ephemeral afterthought that we have the luxury to dismiss or romanticize. Imagination is a resource, a battleground, an input and output of technologies and social order. And so I think we need to acknowledge that most people are forced to live inside someone else's imagination. And one of the things we have to come to grips with is how the nightmares that we see many people are forced to endure are really the underside of elite fantasies about efficiency, happiness, you know, profit, social control. And so racism is among other axes of domination that helps to produce a fragmented imagination where you have misery for some and monopoly for others. And so the take home for me is that for those of us who want to construct a different social reality grounded in justice and joy, one, we need to take imagination seriously, but we can't only critique the underside, the nightmares. We also have to wrestle with the deep investments, the desire even that many people have for social domination, which goes back to the capital, that this is not a consensus. Many people want to uphold uh, and maintain the existing social order. And so we have to really wrestle and reckon with that reality. Yes, right. And David, on, on, on the question of category, I guess I want to come to you with this, with, with a frame um, about what kind of narrative conventions uh, should uh, qualify as a category in our awards. You mentioned earlier, and you've written about uh, race and, and reunion. There does seem to be this expectation at the end uh, of any film that tries to deal with this, that it work out at the end, uh, we can reconcile. So wh what do we make of this expectation? And what are the dangers of storytelling that bow to that expectation, bow, storytelling in Hollywood and storytelling in our culture? Uh, well, my category for you will be the either best or worst Redemptive, redemptive ending. I mean, mm -hmm. Americans demand redemptive endings, right? We go to a movie and, oh, that didn't redeem him in the end. You know, we complain. Well, <laughs> we do. life doesn't always work out that way, and history sure <laughs> as hell doesn't. You know, one of my worries yes. about uh, uh, this Douglas film that's in the works, which I have pretty much absolutely no control over, <laughs> is, you know, where are they going to take this? 
Douglas makes your perfect hero in American history, if that's the story you want to tell, or he can make a really complicated, uh, sometimes dark, sometimes tragic, and sometimes amazingly heroic figure. It, it just depends on when you look and which box you take him out of. Uh, and where this film chooses to end has everything to do with it. If you end with him advising Lincoln and, you know, at the second inaugural and honoring Lincoln, well, that's one thing. But if you end in his dark times of later reconstruction or into the 1870s and 80s, oh, my God, you know, when he's got a massive extended family all dependent on him and he, and he has 21 grandchildren, 14 of whom died in their infancy. I mean, you, you've got a man trying to control a universe he can't control. I want the film to go there. Again, I have no control over it. And one, one thing we, we learned so early you, in this you, process. I think you need a, I think you need Brian's T-shirt. Brian, what, what was your T-shirt? <laughs> don't judge. My T-shirt was, was going to be, uh, don't judge a book by the movie. Fortunately, I didn't have to. <laughs> so maybe you might, well, we, we, just so it's in your closet, just in case, you might have to. Yeah, yeah, Go no, ahead, I, finish your point. I come up with one. Well, also, I was just going to say back to, uh, to Roots. I was a high school teacher. When Roots played in Flint, Michigan, in a very large urban high school, about half black and half white, and I have to tell you, I mean, this is an education for all of us. Here we were for the first time teaching a course called Black America. It was a black history course. But here we were with black and white kids basically seeing slavery on television every night, night after night, and they'd never seen it before. These kids were walking into school, arguing and fighting over Kunta Kinte. And we were all trying to, you know, just keep keep things harnessed. But it was an education for all of us that, my God, what a story that this has tapped into. Whatever Alex Haley may have made up, it didn't matter at that time. And then, you know, beyond that, over time, you always want filmmakers to take history seriously. I've learned a long time ago, you know, that the, the films aren't made for historians. They're, they're, not, they're not made for serious writers either. They're made for the public, but it is possible. It is possible to take real thinking human beings somewhere with the past. But the thing we cannot face, whether it's in Hollywood screenwriting or it's in even our work, is this idea of tragedy. You know, the tragic mode is just something particularly American do not deal with. We don't like the idea. Tragedy isn't just pessimism. It isn't just darkness. It's about human fate. It's about our condition. Why do we love Shakespeare? I mean, why, does, why can the world still not get enough of Shakespeare? Well, partly it's the comedies and the wild characters he created, but it's those incredible tragedies that tell us so much about ourselves, whether it's Othello or King Lear or the others. And, and yet, the movie seems, to, by and large, and there are brilliant people all over the film industry, we all know that, and I've met some of them, but as a form, as this most powerful medium of all, it seems wedded to this idea that a story must have a redemption. It might, but by God, rip my heart out first, because that's the way real history is. That's the way real life, rip my heart out, and then you find some way to give it back to me if you want. But that's the way real history happened, and it's the way life happened. Yeah. 
So, so Brian, I, I don't, I don't want to end this part with, without getting your category for our award ceremony and um, ask you, as you think about that, is it possible to tell stories in a way that puts us on a new trajectory towards justice? You know, I think it is. Um, I remember, you know, in the 70s and 60s, uh, when women would call the police after being victimized by their spouses, the police would show up. They would not arrest the man. We did not actually have a perspective on domestic violence that recognized the horror of domestic violence. And I remember uh, this movie, Farrah Fawcett Majors, uh, The a Burning Bed, and it was actually a powerful story because it, she took on the role of a survivor of domestic violence. And all of a sudden, the voices of women who had been victims of domestic violence began to be lifted up. And where we've gone on that issue since then to today is not where we need to be, but we've gone a great distance. Ten years ago, athletes and prominent people who were accused of, of domestic violence didn't have to fear the consequences of that that you see today. That's because our narrative about the horrors of domestic violence have shifted. And the law reflects that. Mothers Against Drunk Driving did the same thing about the law around uh, driving while intoxicated. The response to that is radically different because of those stories. And they used advertising and commercials to get voices out that radically changed that perspective. So I know it's possible uh, we've seen the same thing on issues of sexuality. I don't think, you know, we would have won the case on marriage equality, but for a decade of storytelling that really helped this country reconcile itself, prepare itself for something that seemed as radical as marriage equality seemed 20 years ago. So we absolutely can do this. We have lots of examples of doing it, but we're not going to succeed in doing it if we continue to do the fearful thing, the kind of stuff that David is talking about, if we continue to only do it incrementally. I mean, I think about a film like Hidden Figures. I love that people learned about Kathleen Johnson and the extraordinary contribution of Black women uh, in the NASA era. I love that. But I'm just kind of pained by the scene where Kevin Costner goes to the uh, bathroom and he physically knocks down the segregation sign because he's mad about his work not being advanced because his worker can't be with him. And when we make anti-racism only a tool of something else, we don't succeed. Anti-racism has to be an end in and of itself. Equality has to be an end in and of itself. We have to stop reducing it to stories as being a means to something else that we all want. We have to create an America where we all want equality, where we all want justice, where we all want freedom. And when you make it a subplot, that only white people can advance. And when you do it in this kind of incremental way or this kind of functional way, we don't get where we're trying to go. We have seen the power of cinema radically move our consciousness on a host of issues. We just haven't applied that technique, those powers, those skills on these issues of American remembrance. And I just want to echo what David said. I, I think part of the political problem we have in this country is that we've created a political culture where nobody's prepared to say, I'm sorry. We've made apology almost un-American in our storytelling. Mm -hmm. And just like tragedy, until we create narratives where we make apology cathartic and empowering, you get stronger when you're willing to say, I'm sorry. That's the challenge that we have to meet in this moment. Create a generational politicians who, when they make a mistake or say something bad, have the courage to stand up and say, I'm sorry, and not get crushed for that, but actually feel strong. You show me two people who've been in love with one another for 50 years, 
I'll show you two people who've learned how to apologize to one another when they don't navigate mm -hmm. something just the right way. It's how you build love. It's how you build health. It's how you build a strong relationship. And I think our storytellers have to reinforce that collectively in the political space, in the stories that we tell about the true story of us, about the true history of America, to be willing to tell the truth, to be willing to create spaces for us to reckon, apologize, and then repair uh, the damage that has to be repaired. Those last two speakers were David Blight, noted historian at Yale University and author of Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom, and Brian Stevenson, founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative and author of Just Mercy. So I know it's possible to create new narratives that tell a fuller story that center Black women, other people of color, not as objects of someone else's gaze, but at the center of our own narratives about who we are. I think back to Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust, a luscious, beautiful story about African-American women in the Sea Islands, their, their struggle for land, their struggle to tell their own stories, their struggles just to be. And that movie was made over 30 years ago. The door was open, that the possibilities were made clear. We were able to see ourselves through our own eyes. It was a gorgeous movie. I think now there are new possibilities. I am surprised, shocked that I was able to turn on the TV and see an episode of Lovecraft Country called I Am that featured, I see it as an intersectional story of, of a black woman being a, able to imagine herself differently, being able to affirm her ability to fight, to be angry if she wants to be, to rewrite our future. We did not believe them when they said our violence goes too far. We did not believe them when they said the hatred that we feel for our enemies is not godlike. They say that to women like us because they know what happens when we are free. Free to hate when we must. Free to kill when we must. Free to bring destruction when we must. It gives me both hope because I know the possibilities. Brilliant filmmakers and storytellers and story runners are showing us what the possibilities are. It's never been a lack of possibility. It's been the lack of opportunity, the lack of commitment, the lack of vision on the part of those who decide what stories get told and what stories remain in someone's imagination. And so I hope again that this is a moment that lifts up these possibilities, the ones that we saw after Roots that were not taken up that we are able this time to really make good on the possibilities of telling a more full, a more inclusive, a more holistic story of us. Intersectionality Matters is produced by Julia Sharp Levine. Today's episode was edited by Julia Sharp Levine with support from Amarachia Nakaranye, Rebecca Sheckman, Destiny Spruill, and the team at the African-American Policy Forum. You can support us by subscribing and leaving a review, following us on social media, and joining our Patreon page for bonus episodes and exclusive content. 
I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters.